invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 this morning. Uh, this week someone came to me and asked me, what is the biggest life application that you have learned by studying the Gospel of Mark so far? And I thought, well, that's kind of, you would think that's a hard question, right? We've learned a lot of lessons, but uh, just for me personally, it was actually pretty easy to answer. And that is, the text is telling me Jesus is far better than I ever realized. He's far better. And uh, for some people, they might not think that's a great application, but that to me is a profound application that impacts every area of my life. Jesus is far better, far sweeter, far more authoritative than I have ever known. And so I rejoice to be able to look with you at Mark chapter 7 this morning. We're going <clears> to <throat> close out this chapter and uh, try to work through uh, this new section. Since we started a discussion of Jesus' initial ministry, or uh, his intermediate ministry, um, we have th seen things get worse and worse for him. I think that there's a break in the book that occurs at Mark chapter 6. And so from Mark 6 through 8, we have a discussion of Jesus' intermediate ministry. As things start out in chapter 6 and throughout chapter 7, Jesus faces rejection and hostility. And so as we think of these chapters, we should think of these concepts, first of all, rejection. He is rejected by his own hometown. You remember the beginning of Mark chapter 6 where uh, the town of Nazareth, primar Nazareth primarily rejects him. They all don't understand how he could be the, the son of God and yet come from such humble beginnings. And so his own family and hometown reject him. He's rejected by Herod who misunderstands, King Herod, who misunderstands who Jesus is. He thinks it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now he's got his reasons to think that, but he's wrong. It's not John the Baptist, it's the son of God. So Herod rejects him. He's even rejected by his disciples. Last week, we learned in the morning service that they were utterly astounded that Jesus could walk on the water. And the text says that that's a problem because uh, they should have known better. They should have known that Jesus is the son of God and he's got the power to do stuff like this. I mean, he had just fed 15 to 20,000 people using five little loaves and two fish. They shouldn't be surprised that he could walk on water too. Even the disciples reject him. But then he faces increased hostility and controversy, conflict. When after all this other rejection, his arch rivals appear on the scene again, the scribes and the Pharisees. We talked about this last Sunday night. They're the arch rivals of Jesus. And of course, they're just there to observe his ministry again. Just want to look around. It doesn't take them very long to, uh, to be quickly, they're quickly offended at the practice of the disciples who are washing or eating with unwashed hands and neglecting the tradition of the elders or the oral law that they had been teaching. And so this turns into a major dispute in Mark chapter 7. You can kind of look back through the first verses of that chapter to be reminded of this. This major dispute is actually a battle of religion versus the gospel. Religion versus the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus successfully points out the problem of the scribes and Pharisees. Their teaching is actually preventing people from obeying the word of God. 
So Jesus faces this hostility, but the text turns in an interesting direction in verse 24, which is where we're going to pick up today. He goes from rejection and hostility to approval or acceptance. You can see this all throughout the text, but I think I see it especially, this approval, in verses like 737. Look there in your Bible, 737. When it says after one of his healings, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear the mute speak. So what begins happening in this text, for some reason, as Jesus continues to minister, people start approving of him and accepting him and making claims like this one. He does everything well. This approval or acceptance of Jesus, I think, comes to its zenith or its height at near the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 27. Actually, verse 29. It says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Here finally, Peter, I think representing the, the disciples, identifies the true nature of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the anointed one. And so all throughout this section, this key word will be on our minds, approval. Now one wonders, however, when you come to this point in the text, why all of the sudden is Jesus received? I mean, why, is, why do things become so positive again? I mean, what is going on? Why is he rejected, then accepted, then rejected? I mean, what is happening here? I think to make much sense of this, there's one other observation we need to make of these chapters to help us and guide us along in the process. And this is a very important observation that you just have to trust me. This is like the key to understanding this portion of the text, which many readers don't ever even see. So uh, we look at this together, and the key is or relates to do with geography. Now, before some of you like audibly groan, Actually, I think I did hear a few of you. Uh, uh, you kind of relate to us, you relate to the class, just how well you did in junior high geography. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get too complex or deep with this, though, so don't, don't panic. But I want you to see this because it's going to set the rudder for us. It set us throughout chapters 7 and 8. The rejection that Jesus had faced, the hostility that came to him in chapter 6, in the first part of chapter 7, everything we've covered so far, took place in, in four places, Nazareth, Tiberias, Capernaum, and Gennesaret. Of course, he's rejected by his own hometown in Nazareth. Uh, King Herod is, is residing in Tiberias. That's when he rejects Jesus. That's where he is. When Jesus sends them out two by two in mission, they're going throughout villages around Capernaum, and then they also perform miracles near Gennesaret. So you can see, while you can't see everything on the map, you can at least see these are the cities where he's rejected. After this, though, if we pay attention to our Bibles and start looking at chapter 7 and verse 24, we can see he goes into a different area. Look at 724. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, so Sidon is not on the map. Tyre is up near the top. It's just all up, up in the north. Goes from here to Tyre and Sidon. Then you go to look at 7 and verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. And he went into the region of the Decapolis. So you have him going the whole way down, hooking around the outside, going on a 150-mile trip down and around to the region of the Decapolis. Won't take the time to look there, but throughout chapter 8, we see that he also goes to Bethsaida and Caesarea Philippi. And I'll put them on the map for you. And so what is going on? 
is we can see that Jesus' rejection was occurring among the people of Galilee, Jewish people, and that his, uh, his acceptance was among the Gentile nations and cities to the north and to the east. And so what, what's going on in the middle part of Mark chapter 6 through 8 here is that Jesus' painful rejection is giving way to an unlikely reception. My Bible, I put brackets around chapter 6, verse 1 through 723, and I write the words around it, Jesus among the Jews. From 724 through the uh, most uh, near to the end of chapter 8, I write the words, Jesus among Gentiles. So just to be clear, after facing rejection and criticism, Jesus turns his attention north to evangelize outsiders. And as, as he pushes the boundaries uh, out of his ministry outside the borders of Israel, he will take his healings and his miracle ministry and his gospel proclamation to a Gentile audience goes on a long village up north to the east to go deep into the heart of Gentile regions, and they will primarily accept him and approve of his ministry. So for the next few Sundays, we'll look at stories that show Jesus' unlikely acceptance among the Gentiles. And this morning, we see two stories. First, we see the story of a girl from Tyre. A girl from Tyre. If you're taking notes, that's number one. A girl from Tyre. Look with me at verse 24 in your Bible. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, but even, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Jesus begins his ministry in an unusual location. It says that he goes up to Tyre. The ancient Roman writer Josephus explains the relationship between the people of Tyre and the people of Israel. He says it this way. He says, there was little love lost between them. For the people of Tyre were notoriously the Jews' bitterest enemies. Go back to the Old Testament. You can even see this. Okay, so the Jewish people normally didn't have much time for the people of Tyre, way, way up on the coast. The city of Tyre, as I said, is a coastal city along the Mediterranean Sea, and it's in modern-day Lebanon. So as you're thinking of this, you're trying to process this, this city is way up in Lebanon. Jesus, uh, once he gets there, we find out he can't even hide there. Okay, he's so popular. <laughs> even up there. I mean, earlier in the gospel, we know of a few people who came down from Tyre and Sidon to see him. Evidently, word has gotten out who Jesus is, even far outside of the borders of Israel, as he can't even get rest there. And so, uh, not too long after he's there, a Gentile woman comes to him and begs him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And Jesus responds in a very interesting way. He responds with a parable. 
something like a riddle because she is an outsider. This is parables are for outsiders. So in this parable response that Jesus gives, he compares his ministry or providing bread to the children of Israel to his ministry. Um, the children's bread that would be in reference to the children of Israel. And he explains that he cannot take his ministry, his teaching, and give it to the dogs when he should be giving them to the children, the children of Israel. But I want to draw our attention a little bit to this concept of this word dog that's used here. Because it's, I mean, is this kind of a very interesting parable? This is a picture you get of Jesus. Well, the word dogs here is a specific word that was used in some settings like this one for a domesticated dog. A domesticated dog. There was another word that Jesus or that Mark could have used to record Jesus' words here that would speak of like vicious dogs, scavenger dogs that would, would be in the city. This is not that word. This is a word that's used of dogs that had been domesticated. And while it was not as common in the first century to have domesticated dogs, it was possible, and this is a word that you would use, it was possible especially the farther you got away from Israel. And so I think that this is, this is a picture. I think he's speaking of these domesticated dogs. You know, in English, the modern-day equivalent might be something like puppies. Okay, I think that that's the picture he's got in his mind because in the very next verse, the woman responds by, she has the, the puppies or the dogs underneath the table in the house. Okay, you're not going to let these scavenger dogs in your house under your table. But regardless, uh, Jesus uses this word as a description or metaphor for the Gentile people. The Gentile people. Why should I take the children's bread, the bread intended for the children of Israel, and give it to the dogs? Now, this was a conventional way for the Gentile people to refer to the Jews. And, and so Jesus, I think, is pressing her here a bit. But did you notice the woman's response? She is undeterred. It's like, you thought you were going to get me off your trail by saying this thing about the dogs? Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Her response is witty. It is humble. It is driven out of love for her child, right? I don't care what you call me. You can help me. And it's driven by belief or faith in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We will not take the time to go there, but if you look in the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, she makes statements like this. She says, I know that you are the Lord and that you are the Messiah. Her statement is driven from faith, is driven from humility and love for her child. And so she explains that she would be happy with any little crumb that God would give her. Jesus would give her daughter. So she does not take offense, but she asks for what one commentator describes. She asks for pure grace. Lord, I know you're covenanted to the Israelite people, and that's your primary mission, but I'm just asking you, would you help my daughter? Well, impressed by this woman's response, Jesus rewards her and heals her daughter. Look at the middle of verse 29. He says, for, or because of this... It's her statement. You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Because of her faith. Because of the way she answers the parable. 
Jesus heals her daughter in a new way. He removes the demon from a distance. Of course, some of the commentators point this out, but as I was just reading through this text over and over again, I just thought, man, this is just like profound power and authority. I mean, it's not surprising that another demon goes down. Okay. Jesus has been having his way with demons all throughout Mark's gospel. But now he doesn't even need to be there. It's not dependent on his physical presence. The demon is forced to succumb to Jesus. And occasionally I let my imagination go just a bit. Imagine the demon. Oh no, what's happening? Who's doing this? What? It must be Jesus. It must be Jesus. So we get the account here of this girl and she's healed. So the text says she's, when the, when the mother goes home, she's lying on her bed. Now, while the text doesn't tell us exactly, I think because of Mark chapter 1 and how Jesus healed a man there and the convulsions that occurred there when the, when the demon was coming out. And in Mark chapter 9, just a little while later, he's going to heal another demon-possessed man, and there's, this man's going to convulse and fall on the ground. I think that perhaps the same thing that may have happened for this girl, but as this mother comes home, he sees his, her daughter, no demon, demon gone, lying on her bed. Now, this story... To me, as I study this text, however, in its context is much larger than a story about a girl's health. I think this little girl, this girl from Tyre, represents Gentile people who will gladly hear from and accept Jesus' ministry. Jesus is taking his gospel to the nations, and he's fulfilling Old Testament scripture. When I have the time to look at all of these, I, I figure I'll read just a few of these. But, you know, if you were to go back in your Old Testament scripture and you would start studying what, the, what does the Old Testament say about the Gentiles or the nations, you would find two major streams of evidence. First of all, you would find repeatedly that God is going to come and judge the, the nations. Many times cities are identified, countries are identified who will be judged, you know, because of the way they treated Israel or just because of the way they did not respond well to the holiness of God. And so throughout the Old Testament scripture, you see the nations will be judged by God. But there is another stream of evidence in the Old Testament scriptures that says that God will also come to save the nations. While the Israelite people may, may not have been as familiar with this, it's, it's all throughout the scriptures. And so we learn in the Old Testament scriptures that God, Yahweh, is the only God. He is the God of the Jews, yes, but he is the God of the nations as well. And one day they will be delivered and will be able to worship him as well. You say, well, where do you see that in the Old Testament scriptures? Let me just read a few passages for you. You don't have to turn back there. <coughs> I think it starts in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it starts at the very beginning with one of their fathers, one of their patriarchs. When God says to Abram, he blesses, he promises to bless him in many ways. And in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed or will receive a blessing. So very early on in the Torah, God promises that the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham and through the Israelite people. I think of another text, Isaiah chapter 42. You sit back and you just listen to this passage. Engage your mind and think about 
how we should consider the God of heaven and his plan for the nations. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Okay, so that's like Isaiah's uh, title for God. He does all of those things. This is what he's going to say, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I think he's talking to the Israelite people. And I will give you, Israel, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Notice what Israel is to be doing. To open the eyes of those who are blind, to bring the prisoners out of the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to graven images." says, Israel, you will be a light to the nations to rescue and deliver blind people. He continues to address this, verse 10. He says, Isaiah 42, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fill it, you the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voices. The villages that Kadar inhabits, let the habitations of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. There's these Old Testament texts that talk about the fact that one day all of the nations, people from the cities and the deserts will shout praise or give glory to the Lord. I think of just a few months ago, I had the opportunity to speak to you at Mission Conference, our our Gracie Central Conference on Mission. I chose Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is written by David, and I think it anticipates Jesus and the thoughts that would be on his mind when he would, when he would hang on the tree and when he would rise again from the dead. At the end of that psalm, Jesus thinks, I think after his resurrection, he thinks about what will be accomplished for the nations when he rises from the dead. And I just want to read a few of those verses to you. Jesus says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow. All who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. God has accomplished it. Other texts from the Old Testament from God come to us. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Just read this morning, Romans 15. In that text, he quotes Isaiah, who says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him, that's Jesus, will the Gentiles hope. So as we come to the story of this girl from Tyre, we come to Mark's text, it is actually bigger than a singular miracle. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Gentiles' hope. Jesus indeed gives bread both to the Jews and to the nations. 
So he extends and ministers to this young girl. It's a picture that his, his mission that he will start in this day to the Gentile people will be carried out throughout the centuries by his followers. So that the nations will experience the salvation that only Jesus can give. And so in this text, Mark, I want you to mark this miracle and its message. And I'm glad that it was out of pure grace that God gave this little girl and Gentiles the children's bread. Jesus' gospel ministry. After healing this little girl in Tyre, he moves deeper into the region. And I want to tell you the story, a quick story of the man, of a man from Decapolis. So look in your Bibles at verse 31. Man from Decapolis. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So here Jesus heals a man from the region of the Decapolis, which means the region of ten cities. One of the commentators, a New Testament scholar, R.T. France, uh, helps us here with the Decapolis. It's, it's to the south and the east of the Sea of Galilee. It's that whole province outside of there. But he, he describes it this way. It's, he says the Decapolis is the largely non-Jewish region to the east and the south of the Sea of Galilee. And so we learn in the travelogue at the beginning of this section that Jesus is going to go from Tyre. He goes, actually goes north, and he, he finds his way around the wilderness through Caesarea Philippi, and he goes down into the Decapolis. Uh, all of that journey would be about 120 to 150 miles. It probably took Jesus at least several weeks to do it, maybe months. So Jesus is continuing continuing to minister among the Gentile people. Well, once he gets to the region of the Decapolis, there's a group of people who join him, probably the friends of this man, and they bring to Jesus a man who is both deaf and mute. That is, he couldn't speak well. Uh, this, he may have had some sort of speech impediment, so it may be that he could actually speak a little, but not very well. Well, the story of the miracle here is quite brief, so we can go quickly through it. I can just, like, you know, just read it and understand it. Although it's brief, though, there are some mysterious things that are going on in the text. Okay, so I'll just kind of walk you through it. So when Jesus sees this man, he first removes him from the crowd. That is, he takes him privately away from the other people in the crowd. He then puts his fingers in the man's ears. Okay, so you're getting this? He takes him privately, and then he he takes his fingers and he puts them in the the deaf and uh, mute man's ears. And then he spits, probably, on his fingers... And he touches the man's tongue. Mysterious, right? <laughs> then he looks up to heaven, prays, and sighs. So as I come to this part of the story, I said, this is interesting. What is going on? Why is he going through this routine? 
Like, Jesus doesn't need to do all of these things. He can just say, like, one word. Doesn't have to say a word, right? He can just do this. Unfortunately, though, we're not told anything about the significance of these actions. Uh, Perhaps these are symbolic visual acts intended to demonstrate to the man, the man himself, that Jesus is going to take care of his problems with hearing and speaking. I mean, imagine a man who can only see. He can't hear anything. Can't talk. And so Jesus comes to him, puts his fingers in his ears. Maybe it's a sign, I'm gonna gonna fix your ears. Spits, grabs his tongue, touches his tongue, I'll fix your tongue. Looks up to heaven. I'm gonna get help from heaven to help you. We don't know for sure. But Jesus uses one Aramaic word to change this man's life. One word, ephetha. That's a transliteration of the exact word they use, ephetha. And with that one word that Jesus spoke over 2,000 years ago, this man is healed. The man is immediately healed. His bondage is overcome. He can now hear and speak. But then Jesus does something very interesting in the text. (laughs) You keep reading down the text. What does he do next? What's he tell the man and his friends in the crowd not to do? Don't tell anyone about this. Okay, now, well, we've seen this before, but can you imagine this man's response? (laughs) I've not been able to speak for years. And then you come and you do that thing with your fingers in my ear. And then you do that, you touch my hand. And then you heal me and I can speak and I can't tell anyone? How do you think you'd respond to that? Probably a lot like this man. He doesn't obey Jesus. <laughs> I just got to tell you something. <laughs> I wasn't able to like talk a while ago, but like now this, this man, son of God, healed me. He not only disobeys it, so do his friends, so do the crowds. Don't listen. I do think there's a sad irony here in that oftentimes Jesus' followers do exactly the opposite of what they want him to do. Yeah, I was thinking this morning, maybe he should have just given them the great commission at this point. And then they would have said nothing. Uh, like many in the churches do today. But sadly, human nature is like this. We like to do what we're forbidden from doing. And so they go and tell everyone. The crowd's response is further elaborated for us in verse 37. Look there. It says, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even, he makes, or he even makes the deaf hear the mute speak. Their response is twofold. First, they were saying, he does everything well. It's actually a three-word reply in the original which I think accurately demonstrates Jesus' ministry and what he was doing, but I think it also at the same time, it reflects or uses similar language that anyone who knew their Greek Bible would know from the creation narratives. He does everything well. In adverb form here, that word well is translated good in your Old Testament Bible when you come across God responding to the days of creation. So after God had made the light, at the end of the day, he said, he looked around, he said, it was good. After he made the heavens, the stars, the moon, at the end of that day, 
said is good. We made all the living creatures upon the world. God looked down and said it was good. At the very end, when he, at the end of creation, we looked at all of his created beings, all, of the, all the things he had done, he said it was very good. And so as we come to this text, the word well here describes the activity of Jesus in everything that he does is good, just like creation. But then secondly, their, their final description here is they say that he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I think that this is a proper diagnosis of Jesus' ability again. He opens deaf ears, empowers those healed to speak. And I think that this phrase, we don't have the time, I think this phrase also fulfills Old Testament scripture. But this is true not just of what Jesus does for people physically. This is a good metaphor for what God can do through Jesus for men and women who are deaf and blind to the reality of their sins. So we've made it the whole way through these two stories and we see how different Gentile towns and villages responded to Jesus when they met him over 2,000 years ago. The title of the sermon is unlikely acceptance. But as we close, I ask you, what will you do with Jesus? Perhaps you feel like an unlikely object of God's grace through Jesus Christ. At Colonial Baptist Church, we speak frequently of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the main message that Jesus proclaimed while he was on this earth. And the gospel has two main components. According to Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, first of all, the gospel means that Jesus died for our sins. That is, the Bible is clear that every person who has ever lived other than Jesus is a sinner. And because of his sin or his trespass against the character of God, we are all sentenced to a place called hell. Where there will be extreme torment forever and ever outside of the presence of God under the wrath of God. So the Bible is very clear that Jesus came and he died for our sins. That's why Jesus came. He died in our place as a substitute for our sins. But the second part of the gospel we love to talk about at Colonial Baptist Church is that Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. So the same Jesus who can cast out a demon from a distance without even seeing him. The same Jesus who can see a man who cannot hear or speak and heal him with one word is the person who at one time lay lifeless in a tomb but overcame death through the power of the Holy Spirit and rose again. As we think of Jesus and we think of him, he truly does do all things well. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe this in your heart? He helps the one who knows that he is a sinner and under God's judgment. Will you let him do that today? 
ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we close. Is take a moment in quiet reflection upon Jesus. And I ask, would you confess your sin today and believe in him? You can do this right where you are, at your seat. You can silently pray to Jesus and tell him that you believe that he does all things well and that he has died in your place and risen again so that you might be saved. You can, in silent prayer, confess your sinful condition before God and ask to be delivered from the punishment of your sin. Would you do that now? Perhaps you're here today and you say, Pastor Brent, I've never believed in Jesus before. But today, I believe. Say, I never turned from my sin before. Never confessed it to him before. But today, I am. Would you do that today? close in prayer. Dear Lord, I'd pray for anyone under the sound of my voice who has heard the healing of Jesus, how he opens up deaf ears and he loosens tied tongue to proclaim the glories of his name. I pray for anyone here today who's dead in their trespasses and sins, who is deaf to the words of God, who needs to be delivered and saved. I pray, Lord, that they would learn and know that Jesus does everything well. And I pray, Lord, that for your glory, through your name, you would open blind eyes and deaf ears the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful, Lord, for how you open my eyes and my ears. Thankful for the ministry to the nations. And pray, Lord, that we might tell others of this as well. In Jesus' name, amen.